Welcome to the inaugural episode of Off the Shelf, Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crises, a new podcast focusing on showcasing undervalued or hidden scholarship and scholar activists that speak directly to this particular historical moment. As the African-American masses face a triple hydra monster of the COVID pandemic, increasing repressive state-sanctioned violence, and a looming second Great Depression in our Black political economy, it is crucial that we reintroduce an intellectual rigor that frames the moment properly so as to break this cycle of racial oppression that is political subjugation, economic exploitation, and social humiliation, and then therefore conceive of an alternative conception of our struggle based on a more radical approach. Thus, we will be discussing those works and scholars that offer such frameworks that both challenge the dominant liberal framework of racial oppression, as well as centralizing these path-breaking texts and people in our struggles for liberation. Crisis off, excuse me, off the Shelf is a collaborative project with the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, which people can find online at hri.illinois.edu. And for our first episode, we are honored to have Professor Lou Turner, who is currently in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning and has, and, and literally the, his jacket is thicker than a winter coat <laughs> for everything that he's been involved in. Um, prior to being in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning here at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, he spent 12 years in the African-American studies program as both a professor and also as a academic advisor and curriculum coordinator. He is, he, prior to that, he has spent time countless years organizing in Chicago on the South side, as he was one of the prominent people in the developing communities project. And he's currently still working in organizing efforts in Chicago for the Chicago Transit Authority Red Line Extension Program, which is a $2.3 billion project, the largest public works project in the history of the CTA. And so again, we're, we're not only introducing and uncovering these works, but we're bringing on scholars who, act, who, who also serve as organizers, who both teach, learn, and produce organizing efforts within the African-American liberation struggle. And so I want to welcome in Lou Turner. Thank you for joining us on our first episode. Thanks for having me, Gus. I'm very uh, honored to be here and, as usual, uh, excited to be chopping it up with you, man. Most definitely, most definitely. And so the first, the, the, the question we have for today is this, one of the most prominent scholars that you introduced me to during my graduate studies, um, Hal Barron. And Hal Barron is someone who both you and Sundiata Chajua had talked to me about and I had heard in passing before, but I haven't seen anything in terms of the dominant scholarship or pedagogy relating to how Barron's work. And lo and behold, when we actually sat down and had a discussion about how, I learned that not only had he been instrumental in conceptualizing racial oppression in a, in a, in a very impactful way, but he had also produced so much work both as a scholar and on the ground organizing that really has been somewhat hidden over the years. So can you tell us more about Hal Barron, his ideology and his work? You know, what, 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 is, what is Hal's contribution based on your extensive research and your extensive knowledge in talking with Hal, talking with Paula, talking, reading through his documents, into having these discussions and presentations, what does how contribute and to 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 the understanding of struggle? I I think I, on the one hand there is the narrative of how and how's narrative captures the development of his ideas. So it isn't simply a narrative for the subjective purposes of showing somebody's life experiences the narrative really captures the development of his ideas. Um, he's originally from St. Louis uh, and came from a upper middle class um, 
Jewish family. His father was a major lawyer in uh, St. Louis, worked for an important law firm. And this is the first data point on the conceptual part. When his father's law firm um, existed, the law firm was um, uh, started by one of the major families in St. Louis. Um, I think it was the Edward Bates family. Edward Bates um, was uh, Lincoln's attorney general. This is how far back the family goes. And so uh, I think it was Charles Bates was like the grandson of what on the side of the law firm. And how his father worked for this for the law firm. Um, Hal tells the story that his father asked him, I think Hal was maybe 12 or 13 or 14, asked his father, his father asked him to reorganize his, some of his legal papers for him. And Hal tells the story that he came across a file in which his father's law firm, and I guess his father, had um, represented some banks during the sharecroppers movement in the Missouri boot heels. And the law firm was on the wrong side of the struggle. They were representing the banks against the sharecroppers who were uh, in debt to the banks. And Hal tells the, when retelling the story, he says, when he saw that, he said he decided he'll never be a lawyer. Um, Hal's, one of Hal's brothers was a lawyer, he had two other brothers. I forget whether the third brother uh, was a lawyer. He may have as well. And so it was always expected that Hal would go into the family business as a, as a lawyer. He said, and we saw that he decided he would never be a lawyer. So the boot heel struggle, you know, the um, which had its own tent cities and everything um, of uh, black and white sharecroppers in the boot heel of, of, of Missouri that struggle had an impact on Howe's thinking about his future, his, um, his future life. He went to Amherst uh, College uh, in philosophy, and actually he studied symbolic philosophy. Um, and he was going to transfer as a graduate student to the University of Chicago to study with the famous symbolic logic philosopher, Rudolf Carnap. Was at the t then he discovered once he got there that Carnap was on his way to Princeton. And so then that's when he changed his major from philosophy to history. And so he became a PhD um, candidate and student in, in history. His dissertation is a whole other thing we can, we can discuss, but I maintain that the dissertation, which I have here in my office, he gave me a co hard copy of it, and we've not since gotten a PhD, a PDF of it. His dissertation is on, he was an, how was an economic historian? Apparently that was very big in the 1950s and 60s, studying the history of like the depression and things like that, economic historians. And so um, it's that, dis, it's in that work that I find the origin of Howe's Marxist take, political economic take on race relations. Although there's very little on race relations in the dissertation, it's a unique dissertation. I won't spend our time. We can return sometime talking about it. But I maintain that it's that dissertation about the relationship of the political economy to the subject matter of the dissertation, which was American foreign relations. And so he's looking at the relationship of the economy, the political economy of capitalist development in America to American foreign policy was the 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 um, the topic of of the dissertation and I think and he brought that later on after he finished his dissertation when he began to work in 1962 uh, for the Chicago Urban League uh, he be, and he became the director of of research for the Chicago Urban League throughout the 1960s which was frankly the most interesting time and the most turbulent time for the Chicago Urban League and the Chicago Urban League was one of the more progressive urban leagues in the country. I mean, we yeah. know this, the NAACP, the Urban League, the national office can often be very, have very different politics than the local office. I very mean, that's much so. What Robert Williams found out, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what Megar Evers found out in Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> so the national office has one kind of politics, but the local, the local uh, chapters have a different kind of politics. And so how was the one who did research for, 
the, um, not only for the Chicago Urban League, but for what was called the Chicago Freedom Movement. And there, this is where we pick up the real contributions of Hal Barron. Hal did work on uh, public school education. Paula was a public school teacher, very much involved in the Chicago school movement as a leader. Uh, in the Chicago school movement. And that was a, a very big uh, focus of Hal's work for the Chicago Urban League. In fact, he convinced the Chicago Urban League to become more involved in the Chicago school movement. The NAACP was already in that struggle, but the Urban League hadn't been in any significant way until Hal came along. And Hal wrote a number of research papers on public schools. Now, he did work on the discrepancies, the inequality in funding for black and white education long before Jonathan Kozel wrote Savage Inequalities, which became you know, big for students and everyone uh, later on in the, what is the 1980s or 90s. Howe was doing that work back in the 1960s, talking about the disparities in funding of black and white education. So that was one contribution of Howe. How in the was another area that he worked in was in housing. Uh, How was the one who initiated the famous Cotro case, the case named after the first lead plaintiff, Dorothy Cotro, uh, which became the Cotro the, the, the case. The Cotro case began at the district level, made it all the way up to the Supreme Court in the 1970s. How was the first was the one who initiated it? The Cotro case was considered the Brown v. Board of Education for housing. That's how important the case was. And the plaintiffs, the public housing uh, residents, won the case. How initiated that case um, and did the research for that case. And he had research assistants such as Richard Rothstein. Richard Rothstein was, was a graduate student and worked with Hal uh, on that case. Uh, John Bracey was a research assistant, was a graduate student from Northwestern University, worked on, uh, on that case. Rennie Davis worked uh, for Howe, was a famous new left uh, activist and whatnot, worked with Howe. So there was a lot of people who were influenced. That's housing. A third area of Howe's work is around labor. He wrote a famous work on the, uh, the Negro worker in the Chicago labor market. It's one of the first studies of uh, labor market segmentation ever written, um, was how. This is like 1964, um, or six, yeah, 64. All of these were studies done for, and then the fourth, the fourth area of his work was in political power, black power. And he wrote a very important paper with co-authors, um, Rennie Davis, um, Harriet Stolman, and uh, I forget the, the third, there's another one. Uh, he had co-authors on this paper, but he was the lead, the lead author. And in that paper, he talked, to, he, he documented qualitatively and quantitatively where blacks were in any kind of political position or political power in Chicago and in the larger uh, Chicago, Cook County uh, region to show that there was Instead of black power, there's black powerlessness, which was the title of the paper. So his areas were school, uh, education, housing, labor, and power. And he, he actually wrote pathbreaking papers, research papers, for the Chicago Urban League and for the Chicago Freedom Movement. And so his theory grows out of these practical and strategic, and it's very important because Hal often talked about his work being strategic. He was a great, he had laid great emphasis on strategic thinking about issues, not just research and not just uh, theory uh, and practice, but the, strate the strategy that goes behind them. And I, and I want to just kind of go ahead and just get running right back into it where you left off and talking about how strategic thinking, because his big thing was you can't just solely theorize. And his experiences show that he put his theory into practice on the ground in Chicago and other spaces. But now the strategic element of it is where it all comes together to actually understand the framework for how 
oppression actually operates. So can you talk more about how strategic thinking, especially in terms of how it, how we can think about this current moment? Yeah, I, I would also want to reiterate what I said in the, the first part of this, that we have a, a website that at least folks on campus can, uh, can access. Um, and we have a number of different uh, uh, areas of work that graduate students have done really just incredible um, uh, uh, editing work, research, uh, and the like. Uh, one of the graduate students, now a professor at UNC, Donald Planey, who was in the uh, Department of Geography, uh, actually has um, been doing interviews with a number of people who knew how. And so those interviews are available. And Donald has written a few vignettes, as he calls them, on how's life and work. So I encourage people to, to um, they want to find out more about how is right here on this campus um, at, at our website. Um, in terms of strategic thinking, um, I was looking through the table of contents of our first our, of our manuscript that collects Howe's writing, particularly the writing from the Chicago Urban League period. And the first part is entitled Think Tank of the, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, the Chicago Urban League 1961 to 64. And one of the documents in it is, in fact, it's the second document, is a, a, a paper that Howe wrote called Negro Unemployment, a Case Study. And in that document, um, in fact, I wrote a discussion paper on it, Howe develops a concept in measuring black unemployment, which now is called, and I think he calls it that in the paper, the discouraged worker, or he called it social unemployment. And apparently this paper, got uh, came across Robert Kennedy, who was the Attorney General at the time. There's a whole background of why the Attorney General would be in, be interested in black unemployment, particularly black youth unemployment. There was a whole juvenile uh, policy center within the Justice Department and within the White House at the time. And one of the areas that they were looking at was black youth unemployment. So that's how the Justice Department would become interested in a paper on unemployment amongst black young people. But apparently the, the story goes, how somehow got, got this story, that Kennedy wanted to know, what is this discouraged workers concept? And I don't know. I mean, we would have to do some more research and the, some of the, the, I think the graduate students uh, that we have working on the project will, will do that research. This may be where the term, and now it's, a, it's an official category in the Labor Department, the, Labor, the Department of Labor Statistics, of the discouraged workers. They're now being counted. But it, I don't know whether it's the case that how is the origin of that or not, but apparently Bobby Kennedy didn't know what it was, and it wasn't in, the, in labor statistics at the time. And again, we don't know, but we're going to do the research to, to, to find out. Another yeah. piece that Hal did was ballots and race on Chicago voting participation. And the way he looked at the demographics of Black voting in Chicago, both at the congressional level, but also at the aldermanic level and, and uh, in the, at this times during presidential elections is a really wonderful case study ahead of its time, I would argue, in terms of political science, on the patterns of Black voting that you can use today in looking at Black voting uh, patterns and when people come out to vote and when people stay home to vote, you know, or, or, and, and not vote. And so um, that was that became important strategically for when Howe left the Chicago Urban League in 1968, so at the time of the Black Power Movement, became involved in Black nationalist politics, both in Chicago and in Detroit, um, uh, when the, um, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers was created, and Howe was involved with them very, very intimately. Um, and then uh, later uh, in the 19, early 1980s, 
he became involved with Harold Washington, who was running for uh, to be the first uh, black mayor of Chicago. How actually was the architect of Harold Washington's policy agenda for his campaign and became the chief policy advisor for Harold Washington when Washington was, uh, was elected. And in both cases, as the issues coordinator for the campaign and as the chief policy advisor for the administration, uh, it was their reliance on how strategic thinking about politics and about um, 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 community involvement. How was principally involved in bringing community organizations and community residents into government and impacting government. So panels were set up during the campaign, and that was that was Howe's idea to create these these uh, um, um, community panels around specific issues. Many of the issue areas that he had covered when he was the director of research for the Chicago uh, Urban League. So that was the way the, the Harold Washington campaign was structured on the community side of the campaign. And that was essentially the, uh, Cal was essentially the architect of that. And he sought to do that and bring that into the actual uh, governing uh, governance um, uh, model of the administration. We have found since we've gotten the papers that Howe was working on a book on the Harold Washington years. We have parts of that, we have that manuscript. Um, we also have a few smaller pieces that he was writing and offered to write for the nation on how the Harold Washington administration represented a new urban governance model to be followed. So uh, we've done a lot of research. We have much more to do on that area of Hal's um, life and work. And a lot of that was due to the strategic um, kind of framework that Hal always brought to his um, policy writing, his research writing, um, and uh, his political writing was this strategic approach. And he, he often emphasized this, in the interviews we did with him near the end of his, his life was the importance of being strategic in one's thinking about these, um, these issues that you know, we're all committed to around um, uh, social and racial uh, justice. So he, he, had, he, he, brought that, but it, he brought that to his work, but the point that we want to focus on is how after leaving the Urban League and his writing of more uh, theoretical work, such as The Demand for Black Labor, it's a major essay that appeared in the review of, of radical political econ uh, economics, uh, and um, works like Building Babylon about public housing, racial domination in advanced capitalism, a theory of nationalism and division, uh, divisions in the labor market and racism transformed the implications of the 1960s. These are more theoretical writings of how, but what's brought into those more theoretical historical writings, um, actually historiographical writings of how, is a whole strategic dimension that he sought to uh, disclose in any particular historical period he was. Uh, he was writing on. He wasn't just looking at what was happening on the ground, but what was the strategy behind what was happening um, on the ground. He was an early uh, proponent, and I would argue originator, of racial formation theory. Um, there seems to be some debate amongst folks about that, but even Omi, Michael Omi and Howard Wanant in the introduction uh, or chapter one of their book, which is supposed to be the classic work on racial formation called Racial Formation in the United States, give Hal Barron credit uh, for that. It's a much more complicated story because there's a very important figure by the name of Harry Chang, who is a Korean American Marxist up in the Bay Area. But Hal's work goes back to the 60s, whereas Harry Chang's was the 1970s. I find it curious that Howard Wanant doesn't, in their book, they don't mention Harry Chang since. Uh, Howard Wernant was uh, in the study groups that 
uh, Harry Chang ran up in Berkeley. So, well, well you know, well, yeah, you, you, how you, he kind of fell out of the story. Yeah, you um, know, there's more to that story, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, there's a whole lot more to, to that story. So, racial formation theory, and later on, he developed a, a, a concept of racial transformation uh, theory, and that plays a, a, a significant role in his writing of the Myrdal manuscript. They also, um, uh, he and Bracy at the time, John Bracy, had begin had begun as the co-authors of that project. Bracy somehow fall, fell off of the project um, uh, in the late '60s, or early uh, in the early '70s, I'd say. But uh, they had actually done a, an interview with Myrdal. We have that in the papers as well. So there's a lot to be found in these papers. A lot of the papers have to do with the writing of the Myrdal book, but there's a lot on other periods of Howe's uh, life. He wrote, for instance, I'll give you a very good example of strategic thinking. He wrote a paper, which apparently he never sought to publish. They don't know why, because um, one big area of Howe's work is planning, and I'm over here in the planning department. He wrote, um, he wrote a piece, um, actually a pamphlet, um, a, 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 a debate, over the 1966 comprehensive plan for Chicago. And it was called uh, Planning in Black and White or the Racial Aspects of Planning. And the city had um, uh, commissioned uh, through its Department of, of Planning and Development the writing of a comprehensive plan for the city of Chicago in 1966. It hasn't done a plan like that since since uh, presently, now we got uh, word from the city just this week that the city after, <laughs> I don't know, what is it, since 1966 is now doing, initiating a new comprehensive plan for Chicago. The last really? one was done uh, in 1966 and Hal Barron uh, actually organized a debate over that one, pointing out the racial, the, the, the structural racism in the 1966 comprehensive plan. Really? Um, it's been yes. that long? Yeah, it, it, they haven't done a plan for the city at, in all these years. And now they announce uh, under the Lightfoot administration that they're going to initiate, uh, and they acknowledge they haven't done a plan since 1966. They're going to now initiate a new comprehensive plan for Chicago. Given all that has occurred, including gentrification, displacement of black people, the the real decrease of nearly, you know, of 210,000 black people in Chicago over the last 50 years, the, the, the shrinking black community in Chicago, many of them going your way toward Atlanta. Yep. <laughs> um, the, the idea that, you know, what that comprehensive plan looked like in 1966 and what one will look like in, in 2020 or in 21 will be very interesting, but Howe was very much involved in critically um, assessing that 1966 plan and using it. That's one. Two, Howe wrote a piece, again, he didn't look like he, the one for the plan for 1966 was actually published by the Urban League. He wrote a piece in 1972, I think it was, we found in his papers, it didn't appear anywhere else, didn't look like he tried to get it published. It's called Planning by Judiciary. Planning by Judiciary. And it's about the Cattrall case. And he makes the, the point, one of the points he makes, and it's a very important point, because people often compare the Cattrall case, they say it was the Brown v. Board of Education and for, for housing. Um, he makes the point that unlike Brown, where the Supreme Court makes the Brown ruling and then washes its hands of anything. It doesn't do it, doesn't try to implement it at all. In the Cattrall case, it went back down to the district court and the court became very involved in implementing the Cattrall decision. And so it's two different views on how uh, racial justice cases um, get followed through on. In the case of Brown, there is no follow through by the judiciary. They leave it up to the states, which is why nothing really changes. In Cattrall, the courts 
actually become very involved, the lower court, the district court becomes very involved in implementing and overseeing control. And so, so again, it's planning by, the title is called planning by, by, uh, by judiciary. And so there's just so many of those kinds of things we find in Howe's um, writing of, uh, about strategic matters of policy and practice in the movement. And, and so just kind of going with that topic, I think one of, the, one of my favorite conversations I've had with you about how has been his arguments on the, the, the Mirdal American dilemma. And I mm -hmm. think that what we talked about plays a major role into the way people are framing this current, this current historical moment. And so can you speak to that? Because I do think that that's one of the most crucial elements of Hal Barron's legacy and what I argue is going to lead to a new watershed reemergence of his work over the next 20 to 30 years. So can you talk more about that? That, that we, only, we, have, we have about 10 minutes left, and I think that would be the best way to kind of send this off. You're, you're absolutely right, Gus, and I, I really appreciate you, you know, leaving some time to discuss that. Um, everyone is, is going to want to get with Hal Barron in this coming period. <laughs> yep. um, I mean, if the outcome is going to be what most people suspect uh, after November and uh, whatever Trump does to try to stay in, in, in power is one thing. But, you know, if things go according to the norms of uh, bourgeois democracy and uh, Biden is, is elected, uh, you're going to need Hal Barron to make sense of what comes next. Hal's point on Myrdal, and it appears in the first book proposal that he wrote and submitted to Random House back in 1968-69, and he says this in terms of the, his initial findings. And Hal not only went through the Carnegie Myrdal, excuse me, the, the, the Carnegie Foundation papers, he went through the Carnegie Corporation papers. He was that kind of scholar. He was very, very meticulous. He always went toward primary sources and whatnot to find that information. And what he came away with is that as against the notion that American, which was held by most people, whatever their critique of American Dilemma was, that as against the notion that American Dilemma was a social science project in the study of race relations in America, he argues that it wasn't that. He says that instead, it was a paper that was, it was a, a, a treatise on social engineering of, for crisis uh, management of race relations in the post-World War II period for corporate liberalism. That was what he says the Myrdal project, or what Myrdal made the project into. There's a whole other issue, and I think how would support that, I'm, I've been a proponent of this view, is that the memoranda, or much of the memoranda that was written for the project, which either did not make it into the final, there's thousands of pages of memoranda that were written, uh, some of them by radicals, um, back in the day when um, um, uh, different people <laughs> had been radical, that didn't make it into to the project, that Myrdal got to shape the final project, and the final project, which became about the American creed and American values, and that the so-called Negro problem, which was the subtitle of, of the book, was a problem that had to be uh, resolved and solved by white Americans. There was no place in Myrdal's view of, of Black Americans solving the quote-unquote Negro problem. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of people have critiqued that. But Howe's point was that Myrdal's um, take, was a Keynesian uh, take from the point of view of political economy, was that the, uh, the treatise was a treatise on um, social engineering or how to social engineer uh, risk, risk management of racial crises in American society in the post-World War II uh, period um, uh, by corporate liberalism. Uh, the title, the final title, and he had different titles over the 
50 years, nearly 50 years of writing. The first title was Make the Making of an American Dilemma. The final title, which was interesting, and it's the one that he had a, a, a couple years before he passed away, but he reinforced it uh, when he saw uh, the election of Donald Trump. And the title that he ended up with was The Reconstruction um, of the Rhetoric of Race. An American dilemma: the reconstruction, the reconstructing of the rhetoric of race, because he saw that race and racism and racialism was always being reframed rhetorically, uh, and that's what we're seeing a lot, uh, and it can expect in a um, a centrist government of 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 Joe Biden is all the racial crises that we see in America that will have imposed on them a frame for managing these crises. And Myrdal is the, um, is, so to speak, the progenitor of these. And when I said the seismic impact of this is that there's very, in terms of race relations, uh, social science in this country, all, of, all areas of race relations, um, social science has been influenced in one way or another by Myrdal and the American dilemma. So um, that it wasn't about that, but was about the social engineering of race relations is what uh, Hal is, uh, is demonstrates. And you're already seeing roots of that today with a lot of what's happened since the George Floyd murder. And also now with the Jacob Blake shooting, we're starting to see the elements of, well, you know, I, you know, I don't want to use the word prophecy, but what, what Barron saw coming and that you're seeing a lot of these corporations, you're seeing Amazon put, put we're fighting for black lives on their website at the exact same time that the majority of the black workers in Amazon are making below living wages right. and are non-union and are fired for complaining about Amazon. Right. You have, you have NBA players withholding their labor, but then they get that they get these very blase in general dedications from these billionaire owners that they're going to donate some money to a general idea of social justice projects or putting Black Lives Matter on a basketball court. And then that's enough of a minimum payment to placate the masses and, the, and to see if that's the way. So, so yeah, so you, you're already seeing elements of it seep into society now. So when 10 to 15 years, when it's going to be looked upon as being a more a more small rate racism in terms of the explicit nastiness of it. And it's more so of this corporate liberal understanding of racism where you still have a, a disproportionate number of African-Americans suffering via the political economy, via social conditions and via imperialism, neo-colonialism. When all these things are still in the place, this is where Barron's work is going to come into play and why we have to resurrect and centralize his works on these things. Is that where we're going with this? That's exactly where. If you just take as two bookends, the piece that I mentioned by Hal, where he wrote the, the menace of American racism in 1969, and just the book proposal he wrote that same year for the Myrdal book, where he lays out in a preliminary way uh, the uh, what I just, uh, and we just discussed about what American Dilemma was about, about the values and valuations of the American creed and by the rhetorical manipulation of these values and norms as a way to socially engineer and risk manage uh, racial um, crises, they go together. I, the, the two, one is the, the, the menace of American fascism, the rise of white nationalism, and the other one is about white liberalism and frankly, black liberalism as uh, constructing, reconstructing the rhetoric of race to manage racial crises. So <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> I think, again, I think people will come to Hal's work um, and it's, a lot of it depends on us getting it published and getting it out there. We're developing a new website, a more public facing website to present his work uh, in this present moment to hopefully to use your term, to turn a moment into a movement uh, um, and to um, uh, have Hal's work intervene in this moment and in this movement, because I think it can help a lot of people make sense of the present, uh, of the present moment. 
You know, I think one way, and I think actually it's a it's an important way of framing and getting into who how Barron um, was is um, really to take it from the point of view of myself as a um, a scholar in African American studies and and Sundiata. Um, uh, for uh, years, we were familiar with Hal Barron's uh, work. I've taught Hal Barron's work in uh, not only here at University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, but when I taught at North Central College, when I taught race and ethnic relations, sociology. And um, Sundiata has taught his work. Sundiata's new book that he's uh, completing takes up Hal Barron's work on uh, racial formation and racial transformation theory, uh, which we can talk about. But in all that time in Black and African-American studies, um, the, the joke, and the joke was on us, we always thought that Hal was, was a Black man. Uh, <laughs> and it, it wasn't until quite recently, and frankly, by accident, um, I was over in African-American studies. Uh, Kianga Taylor um, was a postdoc at Afro at the time. This must have been around 2015 uh, or earlier. And just by happenstance, she was on the corner waiting for a bus. And I had come out of Afro, was on my way to my car to go home. And we just struck up a conversation and I mentioned Hal Barron and said, oh, it's too bad that, you know, we have, don't have someone like that around these days, because I thought he had passed away. And she said, what do you mean? I just saw him last month. And that was, how, <laughs> that's how I found out that Hal Barron was still alive. Yeah. Um, then a month later, and again, it was happenstance, I, I work with a group of folks in creating a black think tank in Chicago, and we were having one of our planning meetings uh, and this is after the the encounter with Kianga, and I mentioned Hal Barron's name again, and somebody by the name of Steve Alexander, who turns out worked with Hal, says, "You know, I I take Hal to the University of Chicago Library at least once a month," and I said, "Wow!" And so that was <laughs> the, the the second confirmation, and right away I I asked uh, Steve, could he introduce? me to how he said yeah i'll be glad to so some we went back and forth with emails sundiata wanted to to come with us and my wife ruby mendenhall um wanted to come as well and uh the three of us went to have lunch one afternoon in chicago with how and his wife paula baron who you know uh is um has survived him how passed away in um, january 2017 and it was at that meeting, and we recorded it, um, um, the idea came up, I believe it was Sundiata's idea, of collecting Hal's work into a book. Mm. And uh, since we were saying that, first of all, not a lot of people were up on Hal Barron's work, and number two, like nobody knew, <laughs> at least in African-American studies, where his work is used, um, knows that, you know, who he was. And so he agreed, uh, and um, so we began working. And I guess we worked for maybe a year and a half with him. Um, I wrote, I think, four different discussion papers, which is an idea of Hal's, on each on four of his of his works as a way of thinking about how to structure the collection. And um, somewhere around. Um, um, I guess 2016, um, it came, we became aware that Hal had cancer and that it was terminal. And it was actually my wife, Ruby, who said, well, listen, you guys have worked with Hal for a year now, or nearly a year, and why don't you collect all, all of the, uh, the work that you've done, all of his writings, and at least put it between two covers to put it in his hands before he, he passes away. And so I worked over the winter break in Afro with the heat off and my, my fingers going numb from the cold and working 10 hour days 
to pull documents which were PDFs, which were many of them in the mimeograph and turning them into Word documents. And I had to actually reformat every paragraph and often every sentence in an article because of the transition made it very crazy. So um, I collected it all. It came to a 500 page document and I designed a cover, put it on there. And by then Hal was in hospice uh, in his home. Uh, it was a hospital bed in his living room. And I was, uh, Ruby and I made a trip to Chicago um, uh, where again, he was bedridden and I was able to put uh, the book in his hands. And I think it was three days later, he passed away. Um, wow. So um, may have been more than three days, but he, he, he passed away not long after that. Um, so we were able to do that. And um, then uh, apparently he had left um, instructions to, uh, for his, uh, his wife, Paula, to turn over his papers to me, to us. And um, he had an office a block away in a, I think it was a Episcopalian or Methodist church. There was a, a Latino workers center in the church and he had rented an office there where he worked and had files. And Paula went and boxed up all of his papers and files. And I, you know, I drove up um, one day and collected them all. I think it was nine, maybe it was, maybe 10, 10 boxes of, of things or nine boxes initially. And then there were, I think, three more boxes later on um, and brought them down here. And for, I mean, I'm ashamed to say for um, nearly a year, those boxes were in my basement and that's, that's unacceptable. But in that time, we were trying to find a, an institution, a repository for those documents uh, that is Paul and I. And we went to Northwestern University, because Hal had actually been a research associate there after he left the Chicago Urban League. And we'll loop back around and talk about that period. Uh, and we, we tried to get them to take the papers. They wanted the papers, but they didn't want the second part. <laughs> of what we were proposing. And the second part was, what was Northwestern gonna come up with? I mean, what was gonna be um, their contribution? And what we were asking for was an archival and uh, publication office for, to continue the work, to pull his papers together for publication, which was the project that Sundiata and I had started. And again, the library wanted the papers, they were committed to that. But the second part, apparently the academic side of Northwestern couldn't get their act together. And we'd actually gone up and given a, a presentation. I have a whole PowerPoint that I gave on Hal's work. Um, but that second part couldn't come together. We did the same thing at UIC, uh, University of Illinois at Chicago. And it, it principally came down to the same thing. The library wanted the papers, but the academic side couldn't get their act together. And so uh, at the time, I confess, uh, the question would obviously come up by now in this story, well, how come you didn't try to do it here? And I guess at the time, I wasn't feeling a lot of love from this institution. So it was, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like the last place I was looking to do it. Uh, sure. But then, um, you know, things change. Uh, and frankly, it was due to the really uh, serious um, and committed intervention of Dean Kevin Hamilton over here at the College of Fine and Applied Arts. And at that time, he, Professor Hamilton hadn't become dean, but he had been, I guess, an associate dean at the time. And he made things happen and both uh, opened up uh, space here uh, for me uh, at uh, urban planning and resources. Um, and that changed a lot um, in both my way of thinking uh, about, um, you know, housing, how's work here. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, um, Hal's family foundation called Communitas, um, uh, I, I wrote a grant 
with um, Kathleen Labar over at the iSchool, uh, who became uh, the project manager for the Hal Barron Archival Project in the first year, we wrote a grant to Communitas and we got funding from Hal's Family Foundation, which funds graduate students um, to be research assistants on the project. And we had five graduate students our first uh, year, um, actually six, and we have four graduate students this semester, and we've gotten refunded for a second year now from the foundation. So Good. it's funding that comes in from Howe's foundation, family foundation, to do work on his archives. A tremendous job was done by a PhD graduate student Courtney Richardson over at the iSchool in uh, actually doing really great work uh, under the uh, supervision of Catherine Labar um, of creating a, an inventory of all of Hal's papers. We have nine boxes, they're behind me. Uh, and she has itemized every piece of paper in there. Uh, I mean, so it's a spreadsheets. I mean, it's just a huge, huge. That's a, yeah, that's amazing, work. yeah. <laughs> amazing work that she did. And it's kind of, a, it's what we use for our, for our work. So right now uh, we have a, a four-phase project. The first phase has been completed, delivered, um, and that was the uh, inventory. The second phase, which we're in now, is to prepare what we call manuscript one for publication. Um, and that work was, the first part of that work was done last semester with five graduate students. And that was the manuscript that Sundiata and I had begun to work with how on work is still being done to prepare um, that manuscript. Uh, we're kind of down to the, to the last part of that. We hope to have everything completed by November to present to publishers. And we're looking at the University of Chicago Press. Um, naturally, if that doesn't come about, we'll see if the University of Illinois Press shows us some love. Um, and then phase three is on a manuscript that Howe was working on, had worked on for nearly 50 years. It's a major project. Um, and it's in a nearly finished, but yet still unfinished uh, state. And it was, it's a manuscript that he had written uh, on Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma. It's on the making of an American uh, dilemma. And it's an incredible, incredible work. I mean, it, I, I, I claim, and I'll have to prove it, obviously, but I claim that it'll be a seismic shift in the social sciences about thinking about um, race relations uh, and race relations social science um, as it has been influenced influenced by Myrdal, the Carnegie Myrdal. Of course, the Carnegie Foundation funded the project back yes. in the 1940s, the Carnegie Myrdal Project. And so Howe has a very original take uh, on, you know, it's a vast amount of scholarship on American Dilemma. And I think his is um, original and sometimes, and at points consistent with much of the scholarship, but I think he has his own points of departure uh, from the, uh, the overall scholarship. And so that's phase three. The last phase, phase four, is um, to create a, um, uh, a website for the digital presentation of Howe's works, his, his papers um, and his articles um, uh, as well. We found since we began this work, documents that no one knew existed for some, for, Howe wrote articles on subjects which he never got published, some of them he didn't even seek to publish. For instance, uh, one of the most important ones we found is uh, an essay that he wrote in 1968-69 at the time of the presidential campaign involving Richard Nixon and, as you will recall, George Wallace. And the title of the paper is The Menace of American Fascism. That's the title of the paper. And it doesn't look like he got it published or even sought to get it published. And it's, it's, it's totally eerie how prescient it is in talking about the rise of white nationalism. 
Yes. And the whole, you know, Nixon's whole Southern strategy and Wallace's um, entry into um, American uh, and international politics. And it, it has so many echoes of today. It's like I said, it's eerie. And he wrote this the end of 1968, 69, um, about that, that campaign. We're still looking for journals to publish it. We tried, I guess, about a year ago, um, and we thought Monthly Review was going to do it, but somehow they dropped the ball, and I've sent it out to a number of other journals. I'm very interested in, uh, in getting, it, getting it published. The, uh, the research project, the Hal Barron Archival um, uh, research project here at the University of Illinois, uh, we have a website. It's a working website. People can uh, visit it. It's mostly where we put up the research assistance uh, work. Um, the website is at publish.illinois.edu and then uh, uh, forward slash how Barron project, one word, forward slash. So that's publish.illinois.edu slash Hal Barron Project slash, and it's called the Hal Barron uh, Project, and it gives, it presents the work that the research assistants have done, uh, have carried out. This is, I'd like to mention one other thing that's very important about the funding for this project, because it has to do with students, and particularly graduate students. Um, Communitas, Hal Barron's Family Foundation, uh, has funded this project uh, for pretty much the strict purpose of funding graduate students to do this work. And most of the money goes to graduate students' salaries. Yes. Um, at the livable wage rate <laughs> that the GEO demands. <laughs> <laughs> so we're very, Hal, was, Hal and Paul were very big on uh, youth becoming uh, intellectual activists around, uh, around issues. And so, um, Paul, as, as Paul would say, he would be very proud of how the funding for the project is being, is being used. So uh, I, I want to mention that. That's a very big part of the project in terms of funding the work of, of graduate students here at the University of Illinois. Oh, no, that's definitely important because, again, one of the biggest things that we want to put forward is that the intellectual rigor that's needed for understanding and framing this moment, there has to be some type of funding around moving from moment to movement. You know, that's right. always going to be one of the biggest issues we face under struggle is funding particularly because of the class issue. And that, as you mentioned, when you go to some of these so-called liberal institutions that claim that they, are, they really want to engage with these ideas and publish these works or support this, then all of a sudden when it's time to ask for the money or when it's time to ask for a serious support, then the emails stop coming. And right. so, yeah, so I, so I think that's incredibly a, a succinct point in understanding why we're talking about how today and his work and understanding that he, he, he got the point that there has to be a dedication and also a funding element to understanding where we currently are and where we're going to be. You know, that's the kind of scholar Hal was and the kind of work that he puts out. And I think that's the perfect way to sign off. And again, I think that one of the best parts about starting this podcast series with Hal Barron is that, you know, discussions with you in relation to how discussions with Sundiata in relation to how, and I was fortunate enough to be able to transcribe a lot of y'all's interviews, you know, in those early stages. And I've really learned a lot about my own personal journey and framing the social conditions of our people and where we're heading and actually got me more into political economy as my central focus. And so it's a very important project for me personally and also systemically as something that we have to put into the lexicon of any type of struggle, any type of scholarship, what Hal Barron has been doing. And so I will be definitely a part of that emergence of the work. And we have more, like you said, to do of researching and talking about it and actually getting it out there.
So don't worry. It's gonna be it's gonna be a long road, but we're gonna get it out there because I do believe that you know how Baron played a major part in my dissertation, and as you and Sundiata have as well, is something that has really helped me understand what I'm gonna be doing and what the movement could look like if we envision what we want for our future. Right. And so again, Professor Lou Turner, thank you so much for joining us on the How Barron inaugural episode of Off the Shelf, Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crises, because we are in a crisis today and we need to understand the crisis to be able to frame the problem for this and the solutions to dealing with said crisis. And so again, thank you, Lou Turner. We'll see you next time on Off the Shelf and take care, power to the people always.